morning. The whole Bible is framed by the revelation and self-disclosure of the triune God. We often think, of course, that the full flowering, and rightfully so, of the revelation of the Trinity is one of the great heritages of the New Testament, but in fact, all three persons of the Trinity are manifested and prepared for and revealed in the Old Testament. I ought to at least get an amen from somebody here. There we go. Thanks a lot. That's great. We've got O.T. Fester here. Um, the Old Testament is, is all there in seed form, and we've often spent time, in fact, I think last year or so, I preached a series on how Christ and all the strands of Christ are found in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in the preparation for prophet, priest, king, and suffering servant, fulfilling the aspirations of Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. But something also can be done like that for the, old, for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so what I want to do uh, for the first part of this sermon is to begin by a brief survey of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, there are so many texts I could choose from, and uh, Bill Arnold is here, he can fill you in all the gaps, but I have, I've just chosen a few in order to give you a picture of the full offices of the, Old, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, okay? So these are all chosen in order to paint a picture for you, and just think about this as they kind of roll over you, the offices or functions that we find, the sacred trust, you might say, of the actions and functions of the Holy Spirit. It's not simply that you know, he's uh, an it, or it's, a, it's an it, a force, or even that he's a person, but actually fulfills quite a few of the offices. Let's just briefly go over these. When you open the Bible in Genesis, you immediately find the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, right? Okay, he's right there in the act of creation, and then... When uh, we're created, God breathes into us the breath of life. Okay, Genesis 2-7. So Genesis 1-2-2-7. Now, right away, to realize, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word ruach is the word for spirit. It's used for your spirit, little less. Holy Spirit, capital S. It's used for wind. It's used for breath. Okay, the same word is for all of those. Look at the context. So here's the Father breathing into us the Spirit of, of God. And this is what, of course, makes us image bearers right there in Genesis. Later on, as they go into, we're skipping all the way now to the wilderness, They're, they've set up the tent of meeting, and they have to design a lot of new things, don't they? They have to design altars. They have to design basins and many utensils and priestly clothing and and candlesticks, and on and on it goes. And they don't have the knowledge to do this. Now, apparently, Bezalel was, had the gifts for it, but he had no experience to know what to do. And so we're told in Numbers 11.25, I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus 31.3, that the Spirit of God came down on Bezalel so he could make the things in the tabernacle. In Numbers 11.25, when uh, the Spirit of God is being brought out to properly govern Israel, the Spirit of God falls on the 70 elders, also fall on the two that were not at the tent of meeting, they were outside the camp, 
Eldad and Medad, so it's 72 in all, which is the number of the nations, a great anticipation of that theme. Later in Deuteronomy 34.9, we have Moses laying his hands on Joshua. Think about it. He lays hands on Joshua and he prays that he be filled with the Spirit of God, that he might follow through on the ministry of Moses and lead as successor to Moses. When you get into Judges, you have this long sequence of examples where the Holy Spirit comes from the Judges. The Holy Spirit falls on Gideon to defeat the, uh, the Midianites, on Jephthah to fight the Ammonites, on Samson to fight the Canaanites. Uh, it comes on Saul with power as he becomes the first king of Israel. David is anointed with the Holy Spirit to, to lead Israel. The Spirit's lifted off of Saul at that point. Very, very powerful text about the anointing of the judges to rule and the kings to reign. And then there's a really remarkable passage in 2 Samuel 23, 2, where David is at the end of his ministry. He's about to write this final hymn, and he says something quite unusual. He says that the words I'm about to pen were given to me by the Holy Spirit. Now we know that 2 Peter 1.21 says that, the, you know, looking back on the whole prophetic ministry, the Old Testament says, they were all carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. We get that in 2 Peter 2, 1, uh, 1.21. But here you have David's own self-declaration that God through his Holy Spirit were giving him the words to speak. In 2 Kings 2.9, you have that amazing prayer of Elisha where he prays for a double portion of the Holy Spirit. May that be your prayer today. Whatever prayer of anointing that, you know, that Julie Tennant has, that's a lot. Pray for a double portion. It's a great prayer. And I, and I don't know, you know what scholars say about it, but I think there's indications that he got it. God answered the prayer for Elisha. And then Nehemiah, this amazing recounting of Israel's history, and he, he brings out that role of the Spirit, how in Nehemiah 9, 20, and 30, how the Holy Spirit had reached out to their forefathers to instruct them, verse 20, and admonish them to the prophets in verse 30. Then that text in Job 33, 4, where Job is looking back and he's remembering the creation act in Genesis. And he actually explicitly said that when, this, when we're created, the Spirit of God breathed into us. He makes explicit what is clearly there in Genesis, but makes it very explicit. Also, by the way, it's in Psalm 104, verse 30. When you move into the Psalms, you think about the Psalms, and of course those texts that we know so well. For example, you have David, that prayer and, and that anguish prayer for his sin in Psalm 51, 11, where he says, Lord... Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Think about that prayer. Or the prayer in Psalm 139, 7, where he says, again, Davidic Psalm, where can I go from your spirit? Those we know pretty well. But what about the Psalm 106, 33, where he recounts Israel's history, and in the point of their rebellion against God, the text does not say what you would expect it to say. They rebelled against Yahweh, the covenant God. Instead, 106.33 says they rebelled against the Holy Spirit. Remarkable. Psalm 143.10, David's praying this time of tumult, Lord, lead me by your Holy Spirit in the level path. And of course, when we get to the prophets, there's so much, but a few I'll point out. 
In Isaiah 44, 3, you have Isaiah praying a prayer or a, a, a prophecy that could have been quoted by Peter at Pentecost, similar sentiment, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You have, of course, Isaiah 61, 1, that, of course, was quoted by Jesus. We'll look at later on, the sovereign, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Or has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That great text in Isaiah 61.1. And then in Ezekiel, these amazing texts in Ezekiel where a couple of themes are brought out. First of all, twice in Ezekiel, we're told that the Spirit of God comes into our lives to give us an undivided heart. Think about that theme, which later Wesley develops. And also takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. What a great prayer. Lord, take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Repeated twice in Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36. And then, of course, that great vision of the dry bones. The entire army of Israel fallen and slain. Nothing but bones left. Can these bones live? And, of course, the answer is humanly no. Can the United Methodist Church or these churches in distress, can they live? The answer is no. There's no human way. It's only possible through the Spirit of God. It's only possible what happens that day. In fact, three times, Ezekiel 37, the mighty wind blows. I will make my spirit enter you and bring you to life. Daniel 5.14, even the pagan king recognizes Daniel was different. In him is the spirit of the gods, he says, because he has insight and understanding and wisdom to interpret dreams and have knowledge. He gives credit to the God of all gods. And of course, Joel 2, that wonderful text which Peter does choose, his text on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured on all flesh, men and women. Men and women. That's also in our mission statement. Praise God for that. We're not going to leave out half the human race for proclaiming the gospel. We need everybody. Men and women, children, everyone. Boys and girls, old and young and old, high and lowly, all anointed by the Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Micah 3.8 He's, I am filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord. He, this, you can almost, it's like that Jeremiah text, I mean, his bones burning. Micah says, I am filled with the Spirit of God. I can't hold back. I have to proclaim justice. I have to proclaim that Israel has transgressed in their sins. Very powerful. And of course, that great text in uh, Zechariah where Zerubbabel doesn't know how he can possibly rebuild the temple. All the Ebon's remembering all the former glories of the good old days. And God says to him, again, you can't do it. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, this is just, the, this is just a brief overview, but what you'll find if you look at those texts, listen to them again freshly, think about that. You find in the Old Testament, in the ones I just quoted, Seven key ministries of the Holy Spirit that are found in the, book, in the Old Testament. One, the Spirit is the source of all life. Source of God's life in us, in you and me. And by the way, in everybody. 
This image of God is one of the great markers that unites all of humanity together. So the Spirit of God gives life to us. Two, the Spirit is the one to whom God's revelation is made known to us. Okay, a God who reveals Himself. Thirdly, the Spirit grants us discernment and wisdom. Fourthly, the Spirit anoints for effective service and leadership. Fifth, the Spirit convicts of sin, unites our heart that we might not sin. Sixthly, the Spirit manifests the power of God to heal and transform lives and bring a fractured, broken world under His righteous rule and reign. And finally, the Spirit universalizes God's presence to all nations. Now what is so amazing is that those seven ministries of the Holy Spirit, all taught in the Old Testament, are all, for, all seven brought over and celebrated and renewed in the New Testament. That's the thing, amazing thing. They're all buds there in the Old Testament. They all come into full flowering. So it's not just a vague doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. If all seven ministries of the Holy Spirit are taught in the Old Testament, and then they're brought over and celebrated and renewed in the New Testament. And by the way, why we're on the subject of the Old Testament and the Spirit, there are seven images of the Spirit that are also found in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through it today, but I'll just mention them briefly. The dove, the cloud, the fire, the breath, which also includes certain texts like Psalm 29, the voice of God, the wind, the water, and oil. Now, we could think about, I'm sure your mind's already thinking, you can remember all those texts in the Old Testament, bring those out, but we meet New Testament, all seven of them come back. We meet the dove, descending on Jesus at his baptism, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. We meet fire and wind on the day of Pentecost. We meet breath as Jesus breathes on, Holy, on his disciples in John 20, 22, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. Water, of course, is the central sin of baptism. It represents Christ, not only death and resurrection, but also the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Peter both teach that. The oil is used for anointing for leadership. Uh, we see it with Matthias. And also for healing, like James, calling for the elders of the church, anoint with oil. And, of course, the cloud represents the manifest presence of God in the wilderness, which is brought back on the transfiguration of the disciples on the holy mountain. So all seven images are also brought over. The point is, when we come to the public ministry of Christ being launched, which is where we want to get today, that Jesus is being revealed in continuity with the Old Testament. All right, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not like you know, a ninth-inning pinch hitter that gets brought in to save the day. This is all part of God's plan, okay? So in Luke's Gospel, our text, you find three things happen in the passage. Uh, Jesus is baptized in water, uh, verse 21. Two, the heavens are opened up and the Holy Spirit descends on him, body like a dove. And then thirdly, the voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now you should recognize that in light of this, these texts, this is the only thing, this is the only scriptures they had, our early beloved brothers and sisters in the faith, they had the only Old Testament, that was their testament. When they are watching this, they're reading this for the first time, they immediately recognize three of the signs of the Spirit present 
in Jesus. First, the waters of baptism, being set apart, cleansed, made holy. The dove, which is a symbol of God's covenant, dating back to Noah and the ark. But also, doves were, all through the ancient literature, doves were used for direction. They could, their, their cooing could be heard over the waters, and they would fly to land. And so they were very, very valuable. So it symbolizes the direction of God through the Holy Spirit. And of course, finally, the voice of Yahweh speaking from heaven uh, right from their beginning, the revelation of God. So from the very outset, when you open the Bible, the Luke and read the inauguration of Jesus, you're seeing that Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit in a way that is, makes sense to them in terms of what they knew in the Old Testament. This is every, it brings together from creation, the Bezalel, to kings, to judges, to the prophets. Then we read the temptation of Jesus, Luke 4, we find that the Spirit, that God tests those who receive the Spirit. And this is the part we don't like. You know, what God approves, He proves. So, you are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. That's the approval. But then he's immediately taken out in the wilderness. Now listen very carefully what happens. In the text, it says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. When he goes into the wilderness wanderings, we're told he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He has the temptations. He comes out, and what does, how does Luke 4.14 describe what happens to him when he leaves the temptation? It's not to say he is, was filled with the Spirit, but he comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? There's a distinct language difference between at his bath and he's filled with the Spirit. After temptation, he goes into Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes to Capernaum. He goes to the temple. He opens the scroll. And what, is, what are the first words of his public ministry? Someone tell me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to release for the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So all of the signs of the Old Testament now find their fulfillment and climax in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the Israelites had hung on for a long time the idea that, you know, well... A bunch of Israelites have gone astray and rebelled, but there's this remnant, and the remnant gets smaller and smaller, and finally, guess how many, how many are left in the remnant? One. Jesus Christ is the only one true Israelite. All of the promises come down to this one person. It is through this one lens that we see what the anointing actually looks like, what the Word of God actually comes forth through, all of that. And so we, as he goes into the ministry, Jesus goes out and, the, for example, Luke 4, 17, the Spirit of God is present with him to heal. And it's weird to be very careful. When Jesus goes out in his ministry, I know you don't think this way. You're already beyond it. But I promise you, your church thinks this. I have to tell you, because I heard it for years. That when Jesus was healing the blind man, his deity was turned on. When he's at Lazarus' tomb weeping, that was his humanity turned on. His deity turned off, because God doesn't do things like weep and all that. All right, so there's this idea that sometimes when Jesus walked through the world, he's doing all these things. Like, wow, God is doing these things. 
Well, yes, God is doing these things, but so is man doing these things because he's the God-man, the theantropic man. The theology of Christology is one person, two natures. It's always one person. Never divides into two persons. And historians, others tried this, but the church said no. We don't have Jesus flicking on and off his humanity and his deity. So when Jesus heals the blind man, it's the God-man healing the blind man, right? When Jesus walks on water, it's the God-man walking on water. That's why the church can lay hands and heal. That's why even Peter can walk on water, though it was temporarily. (laughs) That's why we can weep at the tomb, and we can also say God is weeping at the tomb. The God-man, fully, fully endowed with the Spirit of God. That's, this is the model for us. Okay, so what are our takeaways from this? Well, first of all, I hope you see the continuity of the Old and New Testament in regard to the doctrine and ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, when we read the story of Jesus' baptism, in my experience, the church generally interprets it in two ways, and they're both true, but it's what's not taught. We interpret it as, number one, a sign of his deity. You know, after all, the Father speaks from heaven, you are my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased. That's a pretty strong affirmation of his deity. We often, on the other side, interpret it as uh, on, the, on the fact that he's being baptized at all. Like, why would Jesus be baptized or need to be baptized? We often preach about it in terms of his standing in solidarity with sinners. Now, both those things are true. Those are great sermons. Preach them both. But there's a third thing we, we don't mention, and that is, that, and this is what's important for you, future minister of the church, Jesus is also identifying with us as the minister, future ministries of the gospel. He is showing us how to inaugurate a ministry, how to walk into ministry. So the whole process of Christ being baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, tempted, empowered by the Spirit, all of that is part of that identity of the whole thing which is the third point. And by the way, we talk about, uh, you know why the MDiv degree is three years? Because Jesus uh, spent three years with his disciples. That was the reason they, they started this to go. If Jesus worked for Jesus, it must work for us. Aren't you glad his public ministry wasn't six years? You would never get out of here. But the, the way we model Jesus for ministry preparation is not simply in the three years, it's in the whole process. That's why ministry preparation is, is, is cognitive, it's also formational. Third, we must see the Spirit's role in preparing Jesus for testing. The whole wilderness, wander, the whole wilderness and, the, and the whole thing I preached this last year, if you look at the three temptations, they are meant to be emblematic or symbolic of all the temptations of the whole human race. So if you look at it, you will have temptations your whole life. We all experience thousands of them, but they generally fall into three categories. The temptation of the flesh, temptations to worldly power and status, and temptations to not trust the Word of God. And that's what happened that day. Jesus is showing us how to go through these temptations. And what he's basically telling us, once again, is you cannot... You cannot go through temptations on your own power. You will not survive ministry. I have seen ministry, wonderful ministry, we all have, we've seen wonderful ministries, blessed by God, anointed by God, that are thrown away in one day. 
because we people lost their reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have to deepen our recognition of the Spirit's role in wisdom and discernment. Again, this becomes so clear in these texts, both in the Old Testament and as Jesus begins his teaching ministry. Again, we often talk about the Holy Spirit in terms of two ways his presence operates through our lives. We often bifurcate it as either the Holy Spirit comes to empower us for global witness and ministry missions and witness to the nations, which is true, and secondly, to purify us and make us holy, also true. There's this third leg of the stool, which we don't talk as much about, is the Spirit endows us with wisdom and discernment. And today, we need ministers of the gospel filled with wisdom and discernment. Our culture is challenging us in new ways. We have to think better than we've thought. Even the church puts challenges before us. And we have to think through it. We've got to think better about these things. We simply cannot assume it's all going to work out. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. Luke 12, 12. I want to close with a story, just one, I could tell you many stories of all of these, but just the principle of wisdom and discernment. If you're in India, one of the challenges that we faced in our work in India was a group called the RSS. And the RSS is currently in power in India. The, the Prime Minister of India is an RSS uh, devotee. This is a, a very famous fanatical group in India. They want the whole of India to speak Hindi. They want the whole of India to be, uh, be the Hindu religion. And they want to rename the country Hindustan. And they, they are very implacably opposed to Christianity. And they oppose our church planters and our workers and our, our gospel preachers and pastors at every turn. And it's getting worse every year. In the last eight years especially, it's been horrific. So one of our pastors named Daniel Massey, he lives in a place called Saharanpur. I've been there many times with him, visited with him. We preached together. He has a little, little training school there. And what he does is um, he has on his street leaders in the RSS. He lives on a, dirt, a dead end road, kind of capped in there together, and they insult him every single day. They find ways to, to hinder his work. They, they, they dump trash in his yard in, in front of his house so he can't park his car. On and on and on and on. There's always problems with him, with RSS. And there was no, there's no solution to it. There was no solution. They are implacably opposed to Christianity. And he prayed to the, for God to give him wisdom and discernment. And it came to him what to do. That next uh, month or so, one of the main, in fact, the main RSS leader on his street, who has been most opposed to him, curses him regularly, that man's daughter was, uh, was getting married. Now, marriage in India is a, it's a, I guess, true, great big thing everywhere. It's a really big thing in India. Make big deals of it. There's a whole huge preparations. All families come, all the kind of things that happen with weddings. And so he, he had the wisdom from God to go to this man and say to the man, Listen, I understand that your daughter's getting married. I have an entire facility here with all of our people here being trained. I'm going to send them out into the field to work. He didn't tell them what they were going to have to do. <laughs> no. I'm going to send them all out. <laughs> you know, they're preaching the gospel planning churches. I'm going to send them all out. I'm going to empty the whole thing out. 
And I want to invite your family to come and stay with us. Uh, And it's right across the street from where they are. Of course, it's a big expense in India to have hotel rooms, all of that. So the man said, that's amazing. I mean, this is his enemy now speaking to him, basically. And he said, um, what, what, what do you want to charge me? Because it would be really convenient to have no, you know, all this back, back and forth of cars and shuttling people from the hotel just to have right. He said, no, no, there's no charge at all. I want you to come and fill our facility with all of your family. So the RSS man with all of his family brought in, they filled his Bible training school. And then he had people from the church who volunteered, and his wife himself too. In the morning when they woke up, it was there somewhere waiting there with, with tea, tea, hot tea on a tray. Then, you know, chai. They had their chai. In the evening they came in from their, you know, the, the celebrations and all that, they had tea waiting for them. And what happened through that discernment of how to respond to the hate was he realized he couldn't simply give the guy 12 more arguments why the Christianity should be allowed in India and why the Constitution allows it. All that was impervious. There's one thing that no one can withstand, the power of love. And the Holy Spirit gave him an avenue of love, and, the, and God's love through him defeated the hatred and after that whole wedding was over, when the man uh, comes down the steps every day and looks out and sees him, rather than shouting curse at him, he looks across and says, you know, hello, brother, how are you? He doesn't say Jemusiki or praise the Lord, but he does say, hello, how are you? The point being that God will give us discernment and wisdom. It's a great area we need. This is just the foundation. We have a lot more sermons ahead. But this is to help us to see the force of this as we enter into Christ's ministry and the power of this for our ministry today. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We confess we have no idea what that means half the time. And Lord, we need, we need you to help us. We need you to open your word to us. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to open the hard shell of our experience, Lord, to take down walls we've erected and receive the fresh winds of your Spirit in our lives. We pray this in your powerful, holy name. Amen.